So we are finishing up today our series in the book of Colossians. Uh, we've been talking about uh, the, the need for us to make Jesus preeminent and how, what it looks like when Jesus is preeminent in every area of your life and especially in our church. We've talked about uh, calling out our own sin. We've talked about putting on the characteristics of Christ. Last week, we talked about how if you are, if Jesus is preeminent in your life, it's going to show up in your most important relationships. We have this tendency, if we're a nice person in public, we're nice around our family, I mean, around our friends and at work and around people we want to impress, but at home, we're a grouch and we're hard to live with. And we want to say, well, it's that woman I live with, or it's that man, it's those kids, or it's, the, it's my boss. No, that's who we really are. When our guard is down, that's who we actually are. So Jesus isn't preeminent in our lives if we're acting unkindly in those key relationships. Uh, I'm not going to re-preach that for you, but today we're going to close out this, this series by talking about our responsibility in our relationships around us. Every day, the relationships and the opportunities we have. So Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6, Paul writes, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be, with, always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person." Some of you are old enough to remember the 1990s. Most of you, I'd say, are, but not all. Uh, in the 90s, if you recall, it seemed like every other commercial on TV had Michael Jordan in it. He was everywhere. And there was one commercial that I remember. I looked it up. You can still find it online. And so I wrote down the script, so to speak. It, it just showed him not, not playing in a game, not shooting shots or dunking the ball, but just walking from his car into the arena for a game. And you hear his voice say, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I've failed over and over and over again in my life, and that is why I succeed. And the point of the commercial was that to try and fail is better than to fail to try. That when you have the ball in your hands and the clock is winding down, you should take the shot instead of, instead of not attempting a shot. It, you miss 100% of the shots you never take, right? So there is no success without making the attempt. And that's definitely true in serving the Lord. We can all think of our own limitations and reasons why it shouldn't be us serving, shouldn't be us uh, standing in front of this particular person telling them about Christ, but the opportunity is there. And all of us have the opportunity to do that thing in that time. I, I remember a moment when I failed, and I want to share this with you. Uh, this was around that same time in the 1990s, and I was pastoring a church in another town. Uh, after a funeral, after the graveside was over, I was standing under the funeral tent, and people were starting to trickle away, and some of them were waiting to talk to me, and, and up steps this young man, younger than I was, and I was in my 20s. 
And he introduced himself. I remember his name was Tim Duncan. And I remember that because that's the name of a great player for the San Antonio Spurs. But this was definitely not that Tim Duncan because he was about my size and white. So I I remember, I'll never forget that name, but he said, I don't live around here, but I was related to this person. Um, I was raised in a Christian home. We went to church every Sunday, but I haven't gone to church since I left left my parents' house. Um, Some of the things you said today in the funeral really spoke to me. And it made me realize that I need, to, I need to start following God again. I need to get close to Him. Now, I remember that moment. I remember, I remember saying, hey, thank you. That was really kind of you to say. I'm, I'm glad God's speaking to you. And I handed him a business card. And I said, give me a call sometime and we'll talk more about this. And he walked away. And almost immediately I knew that I had missed an opportunity. Almost immediately I knew, no, don't ask him to call you back. Now's the time. But it was too late. He was already gone. And I didn't have his contact information. He had mine. He never called me. I never heard from him again. I trust, you know, God is faithful. God's not going to hinge the the salvation of a child he loves to one person's mistakes. I trust that he sent someone else to do what I didn't do that day. But it also made me wonder how many other times have I been in an opportunity where I could, or been in a situation where I could have spoken a word of truth, a word of grace, word of love, a word that saved someone's soul. And I either didn't notice because I was focused on my own agenda and my own thoughts, or like in that case, I just didn't shoot. I just let the clock run out. The, the buzzer sounded. Because after all, there were all those people standing around. It would have been awkward to have that conversation in front of all those people. People were waiting to talk to me. I didn't want to be rude to them. Oh, I had excuses. And we all have excuses. When In verse 5, uh, Paul writes, making the best use of the time. Some translations say redeeming the time. That's what it literally is in the Greek, redeeming the time. We think of time in terms of seconds on a clock or hours or days on a calendar. There's actually two Greek words for time. One is the word chronos. It sounds like our word chronology because that's what it means. It means the passing of time. One, one minute turns into the next minute. One hour turns into the next and one day turns into the next. That's chronos. But then there's the word kairos, which is the word Paul uses here. It has nothing to do with chronological time. It refers to a specific moment in time that God chooses to do something special. A particular moment in time that God has set apart for something important to happen. Paul says, redeem that moment. You have a moment. We would call it a divine appointment where God set it up that you were going to meet this person this day or this person was going to come into your orbit or or actually come up and talk to you like Tim did to me that day. And it might not be as obvious as, well, you know, I, I, I really want to know Christ better, but there will be an opportunity for you to speak a word of truth. And I can, I can testify In that moment, you will think of a million excuses why you shouldn't. You'll think of all the places you need to be right then and how urgent it is that you get away and go to that place and and go see that other person. You'll think of all your limitations and how you don't know enough of the Bible and you're you're not smart enough in apologetics and you may not be able to answer their questions. You'll think about how, well, I don't really know this person all that well and, and surely, surely I'm not the one, right? There's somebody else, but the truth is you're the person God brought that person to. You're the person who God brought to your attention that this person was hurting, that this person was asking questions, that this person is struggling. This is the time. Redeem it. Don't waste it. 
That's what this passage is about. And what do I mean by redeeming the time? Well, it could be any number of things. I'm not saying you have to present the entire plan of salvation whenever you encounter someone who doesn't believe. But it could be that somebody is having a hard time, your coworker, your classmate, your friend, your neighbor, and you know they're struggling. And they don't know that you're, you don't know that they know you're a Christian. Does that make sense? You've never had any spiritual conversations with them. Maybe this is an opportunity simply for you to take your relationship to the next step so that they now know that you are a believer who is praying for them. If possible, if they'll let you, walk up and, and just say, can I pray with you? Put a hand on their shoulder and pray for them right there. That can be an incredibly powerful thing. You may never have done that before. Guess what? You don't have to go to seminary or be ordained to pray for someone or pray with someone. And that can be an incredibly powerful moment. It could be that they are not comfortable with that. Maybe there's too many people around. But in that case, you can simply say, listen, let me tell you how I'm going to pray for you as soon as we're parted. And you go point by point. Here are the things I'm going to ask the Father for. And then you check back with them. And you let them know, I'm still thinking about you and praying for you. And I've, I'm here to help in any way I can. Now, it could also be that they come to you because they know you're a Christian. And they need to know what you think. To them, you are God's representative on earth right now. You're the one who they come to with their spiritual question. Maybe, why is God allowing this to happen? Or why uh, do Christians believe this certain doctrine? Or, or what do you think about this article I read that says the Bible is not true? Or, or what do you think about this pastor who did this foolish thing? They come to you because you're the authority. Or maybe they're not coming to anybody at all, but you just hear them expressing spiritual opinions, asking spiritual questions. I like what Henry Blackaby says in Experiencing God. These are, these are words I've tried to live by, although obviously not perfectly. He says, whenever you encounter someone who is talking about spiritual things or asking spiritual questions, you know that God is speaking to them because human beings don't think about such things on their own. We're too self-centered. So when someone is asking spiritual questions, expressing spiritual opinions, Cancel whatever appointments you have and stay by that person and just talk to them and listen and dialogue with them for as long as it takes to see where the congregation leads. That's what it means to redeem the time. Now, how do we make sure we're going to do that next time? Because those, those divine appointments, those Kairos moments are going to be there this week for everybody here. How do we know we'll do the right thing? We'll take the shot. Paul talks about three things we need to do. Number one, we need to pray for opportunities. In verse two, he commands the Colossians and us, continue steadfastly in prayer. In other words, keep on praying, not just when you wake up in the morning, not just in moments of crisis, but throughout the day when you see things that require prayer, whisper a prayer to the Lord. You realize, I hope, you can pray with your eyes open. You can pray while you're driving down the street. You can pray while someone is standing in front of you sharing their heart. Just continue steadfastly in prayer. He says, be watchful in it. Be watchful means be on the lookout for opportunities to pray for others. And then he says, with thanksgiving. And I think the reason he says it that way is he wants, us, he wants to remind us, we're not like striking workers who are, who are demanding something from our boss. We're grateful subjects of a perfect king coming to him with gratitude in our hearts saying, Lord, here are the things we lay before you knowing you're going to do the right thing. And then Paul says, at the same time, pray also for us. Now, if you read Paul's letters, you know that he doesn't ask for prayer for himself. 
very often. It's very humbling to me when I read Paul's letters because I know that if the time ever comes when I'm arrested and imprisoned for preaching the gospel, which is not likely in this country, Lord, uh, thank the Lord, but if it ever happened, you'd get a letter from me that sounded very different than the letters of Paul. There would be a lot of whining and complaining and please, please, please pray for me that I would get out. Paul never asks for that kind of prayer. He knows that God knows where he is. Instead, look at what he asks for prayer for. He says, at the same time, pray also for us, this is verse 3, that God may open to us a door for the word to, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So he's asking for two things. He's asking for opportunities, that's what open doors means, opportunities that the, the, the guy who's chained to him, the Roman guard who is literally chained to him at that particular moment, or, or the guy who brings his food to him, or the, the person who will later come in and interrogate him, or the fellow prisoner, or anybody he encounters in prison, will hear from him the gospel, that he'll have a chance, that he'll have an open door into their lives and minds that he can speak truth, and secondly, that he'll have the wisdom to say the right thing. And that's what we should pray for. Lord, show me the open doors. Show me the opportunities, the divine appointments that I have today. Let me not miss them. And give me the wisdom to say what needs to be said in the moment. That's what we should pray for. Are you willing to pray that way? It'll change your whole day. It'll change your interactions with others. The second thing he, he commands us to do is own your responsibility. In verse 5, he says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Walk obviously means the way we live. Outsiders means unbelievers. See, we're supposed to live every day knowing that we represent Christ. We're supposed to represent Him well. We're supposed to walk with sensitivity as to how our lives speak to the people around us who don't believe. Now, let me be clear about something. Some of you here would probably stand and say, Jeff, I'm not one of these people that worries about what others think of me. And if that's true, good. That's something I'm striving for and praying for in my own life. I care too much what others think of me. God doesn't want us to walk around uh, uh, insecure and, and, and neurotic about whether so-and-so likes me or whether so-and-so is angry with me. That's no way to live. But he wants us to care about what God thinks about us collectively, the church, the bride of Christ because we're his body on earth. What people think of the church is going to determine what they think of God. What people think of organized religion, of Christianity with a capital C, is going to determine how open they are to coming to know Christ as their Savior. See, the apostles got that. They knew that people in their day, Romans, the average Roman citizen had these weird ideas about what Christianity was because it was this new thing and it was starting to spread quickly throughout the Roman Empire. And they said, I think these people are atheists because they don't worship any of the gods. They said, well, these people, I think they're incestuous because they walk around calling each other brother and sister all the time. I, I've heard that they're unpatriotic because they don't, they don't worship the emperor and they don't serve in the legions. Well, I've heard that they go behind closed doors and eat the flesh of some dead person and, and drink his blood. I mean, these are the kinds of things that were spreading around Rome. And so the apostles in their, in their letters are constantly encouraging and, and commanding us 
hey, be careful how you act when you're around unbelievers. You wanna, you wanna counteract their false beliefs about us. You want, you want them to see who we truly are and not what they think we are. And this is why over and over again in the letters of the New Testament, we're commanded to obey the governing authorities. And that's usually pretty easy for us as Americans. That had to be hard for, for a person in the Roman Empire. The governing authorities were not in any way righteous. None of us have ever sat under a ruler uh, one-tenth as wicked as Nero. And yet, when Nero was emperor of Rome, Paul and Peter were both saying, have respect for the emperor, have respect for the crown, obey the law, be a good citizen. You don't want them to be able to accuse you of anything false, anything that gets in the way of them coming to know Christ. Peter would say, listen, some of you are going to be arrested. That's just life in the Roman Empire. But if you're arrested, make sure it's because you are a believer in Jesus, not because you've robbed someone or, or hit someone or hurt someone. Because it only takes one of us to do some criminal act and it's going to tar the rest of us with that same reputation. So let's, let's think about how we live. And Paul would say, listen, the way I live is I am all things to all people so that by all possible means I might win some. He's saying, listen, I used to be a Pharisee and I, my way was my way and anybody who disagreed with me, I wanted them to die. But instead, I'm the person who, when I'm talking to a Roman, I'm thinking like a Roman. When I'm talking to a Greek, I'm thinking like a Greek. When I'm talking to a barbarian, I'm thinking like one of them. And when I'm around Jews like me, I think like Jews because I don't want anything to get in the way of them coming to know Christ. I don't want to cause unnecessary offense unless they're offended by the gospel. It's like if you can imagine a young man meeting his girlfriend's parents for the first time. Some of you have been there. And this girl is the one. He's convinced she's the one. He's in love with her. He wants this to go well. He does not show up in his Judas Priest concert t-shirt with the sleeves torn out and his gym shorts and his and his uh, his clogs or whatever. I mean, he's he's dressed well. He's representing himself well. Now he also doesn't pretend to be something he's not. He doesn't claim to have just flown in from his private island and stopping along the way to save eight kids from a burning building. I mean, he's going to be himself, but he's going to be the best version of himself. Why? Because he doesn't want to cause any unnecessary offense. He doesn't want to do anything that could hinder his relationship with this young woman and her parents, who he hopes will be mom and dad-in-law someday. In the same way, in all our interactions with unbelievers, we need to recognize, I don't want to be the reason this person decides Christianity is not for me. I don't want to be the reason this person says, oh, those Christians are all the same. Instead, I want to, I want to change their opinion of what a Christian is so that they'll see who Jesus really is. Every day when we wake up, we need to realize today we're going to meet some people who don't know Christ. Maybe we're meeting them for the first time. Maybe the only time we'll ever meet them. Let's redeem that time. Whatever, whatever that takes, whatever, uh, whatever that looks like in the day ahead, only God knows, but be prayed up and ready. Number three, Paul says, watch your words. Those aren't his words, but mine, but it sums up what the Bible says, not just here, but throughout the scriptures. I'll give you a few examples. Proverbs 18, 21, life and death are in the power of the tongue. We can change the course of someone's eternal destiny with a spoken word. Can you think about that? The responsibility of that. The book of James spends nearly a chapter on the power of the tongue to either kill or heal. It compares it to a fire. A fire can either warm you and cook your food or it can destroy everything you have. And that's the way it is with our words. 
In Matthew 12, 37, this is the one that, that sticks in my heart. Jesus said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word you speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Every careless word. Don't you wish you would have heard that before you went to that football game yesterday? So what Paul says in verse 6 is, let your speech always be gracious. What does it mean to speak graciously? What, is it, what are words of grace? Well, they're words that build people up. They don't tear them down. They're, they're words that help. They don't hurt. They're words that bring joy to a family, to a church, to a community, to a lost soul. They're not words that, that nag or criticize or complain or curse. We're supposed to bring joy wherever we go. We're supposed to be people who make the room a pleasanter place to be. We're supposed to be peacemakers. We don't stir up trouble. We tamp down the emotions in the room. We're supposed to be people who show the world how to laugh and truly laugh. This world doesn't know how to laugh unless it's making fun of somebody else. If you notice that, that's the, that is the content of our comedy these days. We need to show the world a different way to have joy. And that's with words that are gracious. Here's the standard, and I know it's difficult, but it's, it's right. Uh, every person who speaks to us ought to leave a little closer to God because they spoke to us. Paul says, let your speech be gracious, and then he says, seasoned with salt. And what does that mean? Any of you who are proud of your ability to cook, and some of you I'm sure are. I've eaten in some of your homes, and you're great. Whether you're good on the grill or in the kitchen or both, ask yourself the question, if you had a bunch of friends over to the house for dinner, and you realized at the last minute, oh my gosh, I forgot to season the food, would you serve it to them? No, I know you wouldn't. You'd make up something. You'd say, oh, well, the, the dog ate the steak. I'm sorry. We were going to have to all get in the car and go, and I'll buy, I'll buy dinner for you myself. Because you're not going to put your reputation as a cook on the line by serving them slop. Inedible slop. And yet, we just freely blather out whatever pops into our minds instead of seasoning our words, taking the time to make sure this word is exactly what is needed for this particular moment. Now, I know, I know we value people who are quick on their feet. For goodness sakes, we elect presidents based on how well they do in a debate for all the sense in the world that makes. But God doesn't value people who are quick. God values people who think before they speak, who say the right word at the right time, and if they don't know the right word, they don't speak. That's the way we should be. Our speech should be gracious, seasoned with salt. Now let me just close with this. Uh, some of you may be familiar with a magic act, this, this comedy pair named Penn, uh, Penn and Teller. Some of you may be familiar with them. They're not as big anymore. But uh, let me describe them for you. You might recognize the image. Penn, Penn Gillette is the big tall one with a ponytail and glasses, kind of loud and obnoxious. Uh, and Teller is the little guy who's sort of like Harpo Marx, if you're, if you're old enough to know who that was, uh, who doesn't speak during the act. They're very funny. Penn Gillette is actually an outspoken atheist. And he runs a website where he talks often about philosophy and life and religion. A few years ago, he posted a video on there that made some of his fellow atheists very upset because he described meeting a man who gave him a Bible and asked to pray for him. 
He said, I've been around a lot of religious people. This guy was different. He was very genuine. I, I have a lot of respect for him in the way he presented his faith. And then he said the following, and I wrote it down so I could quote it to you exactly. He said, I've always said, you know, that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize them? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed that the shadow of a doubt, beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming to hit you and you didn't believe it and that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. I'm not telling you to go tackle anyone. <laughs> but this is how the most effective evangelistic sermon I've ever heard was preached by an atheist magician. And he was right. We have opportunities around us. We believe in a Savior who didn't hand us a business card and say, call me later. Nor did he send out a mass email or buy a, a, a billboard that said, God loves you. He didn't stand in a, in a stadium and, and preach. He went to the cross. He knew what was at stake. The, the semi-truck of eternal separation from death was bearing down on us, and he threw himself in the way and took the brunt of it. He died so that we could live. That's the good news. That's what we have to share with people. And then he said, take my message to others. Listen to me. We have no greater purpose than that. And if you are uh, in the workforce right now, that's actually your job. Whatever you're getting paid to do is fine, but your job is actually to represent Christ in that place. And if you're retired and you're thinking about uh, what you want to do with your time, I'll, I'll tell you what you do with your time. Wherever you go, you represent him. If that's, if that's at home, if that's uh, on, a, on a vacation, if that's wherever you go, you are looking for those opportunities, those divine appointments. Will you recognize it when it happens? I want, I want you to think about the younger me standing under that funeral home tent 30, almost 30 years ago, watching a young man walk away and losing forever my opportunity to speak to him, to give him direction, to pray with him. Don't make that same mistake. This week, this week, there will be divine appointments all around you. Will you be prayed up so you'll recognize them when they happen? Will you own your own responsibility and, and spend as much time as necessary with that person? Or will you speak words of life? God is passing you the ball and the clock is ticking. Are you going to take the shot? Are you going to listen to the buzzer sound?